If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your direct support to be able to continue producing these episodes this entire year. So if you are inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.com support. We are continuing to offer our Green Dreamer planners made with recycled materials and created to support our holistic well-being, and that you can find in our fundraising shop at greendreamer.com shop. Finally, I wanted to share that I just launched a supplementary live podcast called Uprooted, which will be more off the cuff and interactive, allowing for live listener questions and contributions. This means you'll be able to call in live and be a part of the episode recording. I may sometimes debrief what we first talked about here. I may invite some of our past Green Dreamer guests for more casual conversations or even bring multiple people in with contrasting views to help us further expand our learnings. For more information on that and to share your suggestions on what you would want to hear, you can head to my newsletter, kamea.substack.com. For now, on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Vanessa Raditz. The flip side of vulnerability is resilience, because histories of marginalization and oppression are simultaneously the histories of survival and resistance and resilience that are also embedded within communities that are often called vulnerable. Vanessa is a queer biocultural geographer, educator, and storyteller dedicated to community healing, opening access to land and resources, and fostering a thriving local economy based on ecological resilience. They are a chronic academic, a current PhD student, a founding member of the Queer Eco-Justice Project, a co-organizer of Queers for Climate Justice, and the director of the film Fire and Flood. Queer Resilience in the Era of Climate Change. One person in particular that I've been thinking about a lot recently is Wangari Mathai, a Kenyan woman who founded the Greenbelt Movement and received the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize. So I was in Kenya when I was 15 to 18. I, I was there with my family. My mother does international public health work. 
And I was, you know, I was just a high schooler, but I'd, I, at that point, I'd already been engaged in some bits of environmental work, but it was really through learning about Wingari Mathai's work and getting to participate in some tree planting with her that things started to really click for me. And I began to understand the ways in which social injustices globally are connected also to the way that we treat the earth. And that in particular, capitalism and globalized neoliberalism has negatively impacted both people, particularly women and people of color around the world, and also robbed people around the world of the kinds of earth-based livelihoods that have allowed us to evolve as a species for 50,000 years. So I want to acknowledge that as um, a major turning point for me. At that point in time, I'd already been out as bi for couple of years. I came out pretty early and I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland and had a very affirming community. Actually, my pastor at church, United Church of Christ, was um, my first lesbian mentor or I, mm. yeah, person that I looked up to. And my church experience was also my entry point to environmentalism, if I'm, you know, to be honest. I'm very lucky in that regard as Christian church and other monotheistic trans transcendent religions have mm -hmm. been some of the drivers of our disconnection from from land and from each other. But in my case, the United Church of Christ has been involved in the environmental justice movement really since its founding. And so it was, you know, back in late middle school that I read their report on the location of toxic waste facilities and people of color communities that was published in the late 80s. And so it was actually yeah, through that spiritual community that one, I got involved in, like we did a boycott of Taco Bell in solidarity with the Immokalee workers. So I learned mm -hmm. about farm worker rights and it was also the place where I learned that it's not just okay to be queer, but it can be and is revered and holy. Mm. From a very young age, I understood that you could be a leader and a beloved leader of community. Thank you so much for sharing um, and offering a glimpse into your background and what really solidified or helped to inspire the work that you do today. And we had explored the concept of biocultural diversity before with Terra Lingua's Dr. Louisa Maffi, which wow. to our listeners who haven't listened to that conversation, she defined biocultural diversity as sort of recognizing the aligning trends of biodiversity loss, cultural diversity loss, and language diversity loss, and seeing them not as coincidental, but because they're all intricately connected and place-based. And so severing those relationships and knowledges compromises all of them. And Vanessa, I know that That's you right. are in part a biocultural geographer. I'm curious what this has meant for you in terms of how you understand geography and place and what alternate perspectives on our climate and ecological crises has it invited you to consider? This is actually, I think it's been one of the most intriguing concepts for, for me to to try and bring not only into environmental work, I think that I'm going to have to go back and listen to that conversation that you had with uh, Louisa Maffei, 
I think that it's it's been brought into conservation work in really important ways that promote the leadership of indigenous communities and particularly the sovereignty and land rematriation that is necessary for global conservation of our biocultural diversity, our resources for resilience. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is how to bring that framework to the queer and trans movement. I think that we as queer people have been so distanced from nature. I had a really lucky experience with the church that I grew up in, but I know so many people who their experiences with church were some of the moments of deepest trauma in um, hearing the people that they that they loved and looked up to saying that they were uh, unnatural, that they were crimes against nature. And so there's there's been a long tradition in queer scholarship and in the LGBTQ movement to, you know, if they're going to call us unnatural, well, we, we don't want anything to do with nature. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, you know, really thrive in this realm of, of the cultural and like cultural productions. And, and we've done so much amazing work within that realm. But I think what biocultural diversity also offers is a way of coming home to a deeper part, if you're spiritual, I'd say like a spiritual essence of of the in, innate <laughs> diversity of life. And so if we're thinking about like the queer ecologies literature and biological exuberance, the idea of the the vast variability of gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, kinship systems, like all of these different ways of organizing society, there's just an enormous diversity amongst non-human life and also uh, as amongst humans as we've evolved in this intimate relationship with place since the beginning of human existence. And so I think that reimagining a queerness and a, and a radical queer positionality that one understands our intimate relationship with land and two is aligned with indigenous sovereignty and land rematriation, recognizing that two spirit people have been revered in indigenous communities and have had many different kinds of roles that are important for us to learn from in this time. And so the work that we can do as queer and trans people to support indigenous sovereignty is key to our liberation and is key to any kind of livable future on this planet. This really reminds me of something I've been thinking about, which is uh, the severances that we've created and how we've disassociated ourselves. So this creation of the binary of man and nature, and as you alluded to, this severance between culture and ecology, where culture and society or society and ecology or culture and ecology are seen as separate things. When if we were to go deeper into their roots, there is culture in ecology and there are social relationships and there are societies within Earth's every social and ecological system. Absolutely. Actually, in that book that I just cited from Bruce Bagamiel, Biological Exuberance, 
he writes about that specifically. You know, he's not trying to turn to queerness in animals as some way of saying like, look, it's there's some kind of innate biological, maybe like a DNA kind of origin story for queerness. Like, no, he's he's writing about a biocultural diversity that even if we're looking at sexual behavior amongst primates, we're not looking at something that's only genetically driven, that we are as, as living beings constantly in interaction with our uh, surrounding environments, both living and non-living animate beings. So I, I think that that is really helpful for me in trying to relocate myself as a queer person, not just to claim that I have a that I, I belong amongst humans, but that I, I belong amongst living things. That I don't need to search for a, a gay gene or some kind of physiological proof that I'm uh, okay or you know that I'm a legitimate being but no we we are always in a constant process of mutual change and evolution and i think that that is i think that's important i think it's really important for for queer and trans movements to understand because i mean queerness has been for in it, it one of the things i love about queer theory and queer community is this willingness to uh, one question what has been normalized and to imagine how to be outside of some of the logics of this dominant control culture that so many of us were raised within. And I love that. And also I think rooting this idea of vast variabilities within the biocultural diversity of the world also grounds us in what kinds of liberatory futures are also possible on this planet in the current state of harm. And I just opened up. So I'm, I'm a, a graduate student at the University of Georgia right now getting my PhD in geography and I've been writing about exactly this mm. and a big part of it was it was trying to go back to understand the way that you know ecofeminists made some of these connections between the separation of humans from uh, nature man from women and these dueling dualisms that set up harm to bodies and land, but in the ways in which they would refer to uh, indigenous people and particularly, you know, non cis heterosexual indigenous people, it was often in a really appropriative way that would use use this anthropological term of a birdatch, which is a really um, kind of outsider. Uh, it was mostly came from as a word created by colonists to describe the, the, the non-cis heteronormative kinds of genders and sexualities that they saw amongst the indigenous people of North America when they, when they arrived. And so in, in excavating some of that memory, it was, I mean, one, it's important to to lift that up, but we can't just look back and say, oh, that, you know, 
Lamana among Zuni people doesn't mean trans because they didn't have the same ideas of man and women that are foundational to the concept of a transgender identity, right? So instead of imposing these modern contemporary terms on the relationships that indigenous people had prior to colonization and and are still continuing to uplift within their their own cultural resurgence that it's it's more important not to look back and say oh there were gay people on the north american continent before colonization it's more important to say that cis heteropatriarchy as a system is a colonial invention and so for us as queer and trans people to create a future on this planet we need to be fighting those very systems that our ancestors imported to this land. And that Mm -hmm. that is the kind of queer liberation movement in solidarity with indigenous sovereignty and land rematriation that will allow our survival and the survival of all the queer and trans biologically exuberant living things on the planet. Yeah. It almost sounds like an invitation to not just redefine these different labels based on the language and frameworks we have today, but almost to undefine them in a sense. Yeah. And and, and when it comes to various uh, queer indigenous identities, I think respecting what people in the communities are currently doing, because I think that was the other, the major issue with the way that eco-feminists and, and even some like queer ecologies scholars talk about it is they'll they kind of appropriate this history as their own in order to advance social justice movements that predominantly benefit white queer and trans people but using the memory of pre-colonial queer indigeneity instead mm-hmm. of recognizing that history and working in solidarity with the queer indigenous people that continue to be at the forefront of ecological justice work today. And perhaps to help illustrate these points with more recent and present examples, in the film you directed, Fire and Flood, Queer Resilience in the Era of Climate Change, you explore three levels of vulnerability. Can you shine some light on these different layers of discrimination, which I think are very instructive in terms of helping us understand the different levels of transformation that we need if we want to create a world which truly cares for and honors all beings? Fire and Flood is a story of the near simultaneous disasters in the fall of 2017. It began with my personal experience of living through the Tubbs Fire in Santa Rosa, which um, started at the same time as as 13 other fires across the region. (laughs) And the day before those fires had started, I had been in a series of really deep and beautiful conversations with some queer and femme folks from Puerto Rico who were raising money and collecting seeds and solar panels and things like that to send back to the island to support the resilience of kinds of regenerative communities that were supporting each other in the immediate wake of disaster. And so it was from those deep conversations that I immediately plunged into the fires and the kinds of experiences that I had just, you know, based on my own identities, moving back and forth across the landscape to 
harvest produce on local farms to bring to the pop-up kitchens and distribution centers. And also, I'd, I'd formerly been a mentor at an LGBTQ center in Santa Rosa. And so I once they were able to reopen, I went back in there and basically was just sitting with the youth as they'd come in. Sometimes folks would come in during the day from the shelters just for a, a, a space where they could process and vent what they were experiencing. And after that, I was like, you know, I think that these stories these stories need to be heard. These stories need to be talked about. And um, particularly in the queer and trans community, because like I said, this distance from the earth, this distance from nature, I think has also led to a distance from really understanding the precarious position that we're in fully and being involved in climate justice and being involved in resilience work. And so that's the goal of this film is to create a cultural object that queer and trans communities can use to hold these conversations and to start planning and preparing for resilience. So some of the um, multiple levels of vulnerability that I've been thinking about, and and yeah, the word vulnerability, it's so charged. I just want to say when I use that term, I'm always recognizing that the, the flip side of vulnerability is resilience because histories of marginalization and oppression are simultaneously the histories of survival and resistance and resilience that are also embedded within communities that are often called vulnerable. So I, I want to preface with that, but you know, given the the kind of public health background <laughs> I, I come from, it is you know vulnerability is the term of the field of disaster risk reduction. So um, the the three main forms of vulnerability that I've been thinking about are. There's the individual or interpersonal. So this is like in a shelter where you're with perhaps someone of a fundamentalist um, religious belief system because disaster management, especially since the beginning of neoliberalism and all of the disinvestment in our public services, particularly since then, most disaster response work is done by religious organizations. So if you're a young queer trans person in a shelter, that is one way in which discrimination happens is this kind of direct interpersonal violence from people who don't believe that you should exist mm. or have access to the kinds of services that they provide. So there are stories from around the country of people being denied access to shelters, trans women being arrested for using the showers of their genders, and and just generally different kinds of interpersonal discrimination. Then there's also uh, institutional discrimination. So this is things like the laws and policies that make it so that that kind of individual discrimination can continue without any repercussions. So this looks like the lack of protections within um, the non-discrimination policies within FEMA and these other organizations. And then the last one that I focus on the most is structural vulnerabilities, which are the kinds of inequities that come from this long history of bias and discrimination that have set up inequalities in the queer and trans communities before these disasters even happen. So this looks like the really high rates of poverty and disability and homelessness, chronic illness, mental um, neurodivergence, and um, importantly, incarceration. One in two Black trans women 
um, will have been incarcerated at some point in their lives. And, and that's, you know, that's a result of interpersonal discrimination and also because of all of these other, because of the way that poverty has been criminalized, because of the way that homelessness is criminalized, because of our lack of access to mental health resources that all together put people in cages. And all of those kind of structural vulnerabilities, inequities that existed before a disaster happens, put queer and trans communities at disproportionate risk for death and uh, extreme hardship. And those, those kinds of things in, until very recently have not been acknowledged within the disaster risk reduction field. Mm. You know, so there's, there is an arm, like I was just in a webinar yesterday where FEMA for the very first time spoke directly to this question of disaster vulnerability in queer and trans communities. And so there's some shifting in that institutional level of vulnerability. But I don't think we need to wait on their leadership. I really think that, like I said, the history of vulnerability is simultaneously a history of resilience. And there is so much creative wisdom for living otherwise and caring for each other within disabled communities, like within communities who have been um, in and out of carceral settings. Like people are amazingly resourceful. And so I, I think that as a queer and trans community being dedicated to climate justice means really investing in the leadership of the folks who have been <laughs> set up for social death within our system and nevertheless have found a way to survive. So I think mm -hmm. that those are the creative solutions that we most desperately need right now. Yeah. I think disaster relief can feel like a sensitive topic to critique because one may feel that there is still the reality that in times of emergency and urgent threats, perhaps any form of relief, no matter who it comes from, is going to support the survival of whoever the aid can reach. But yeah. I guess if we were to zoom out and take a step back, how might these disaster relief efforts be a part of or even reinforce greater systems of injustices, especially when they aren't oriented towards supporting long-term community-based resilience? Absolutely. I mean, I think of just in Santa Rosa, one thing that we noticed was all, you know, the fires were happening in like peak harvest season and all of these local farms were just donating everything they had. But there was not a mainstream mechanism by which they could get reimbursed for all those donations. Meanwhile, Salvation Army would have these massive contracts for like Kellogg and Cargill and Purdue. And so they're bringing in all of this industrial produced food to Santa Rosa in the middle of Sonoma County. This is like the birth of the slow food local food movement in the United, you know, in the United States among the bougie foodies, right? Like we got some food, we got some produce. Uh, and those local farmers did not have an easy mechanism for getting reimbursed. And meanwhile, you know, industrial agriculture has these longstanding connections um, and, and they are getting paid for kind of offloading what's often, you know, food that they might not have been able to, to sell. So I think that that's one of the things that we need to look at is our current system for disaster relief is highly centralized, 
highly militarized, and we, we know the environmental harms of the military, right? So there's 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 that as well. And because it's highly centralized, it's better equipped right now to to be able to support a general quote unquote normal population, which by its definition is uh, any community at the margins is not included in that, nor are these creative alternatives for how we can remake our world. They're, you know, they're not going to be included. And I think that, you know, there's, I think that like mutual aid is critical. Like this is, that's what this is all about really in the the end of the day. It's like during these moments of disaster, you see an, an enormous uptick in people caring for each other, these pop-up food clinics. We've, we've seen that through um, COVID pandemic. But I, one of the questions that I keep having is if we're, you know, if as a um, anti-racist movement, we're really focused on moving towards reparations, how do we use these systems, these infrastructures that we already have, like FEMA, to be able to do the mass scale re- allocation of resources towards local community response so that we're not always just having to do our response on a wish and a prayer and this year's lost harvest income, but this the kind of funding that's currently going to Purdue and Cargill is going to your local community farm, is going directly to the um, indigenous nation that is running its own health programs, right? So I think that that is the way that we have to use these systems that currently exist rather than just, um, I think it's important to build the alternative and to fight the bad at the same time. And part of that means moving the resources that are that are already <laughs> within this infrastructure and moving them towards what we are trying to grow. Mm. I'm not sure if I can articulate this well, but from what I've learned, decentralized systems are generally a lot more resilient. Yes. It's just they're less vulnerable to something going wrong and the entire system essentially collapsing because they're reliant on that one part. And on the flip side, I think some people may argue that centralized systems are more efficient and therefore in the case of disaster relief, they may be more capable of getting resources to those who are the most in need. So I wonder if that's a sort of misconception that we uh, might be able to deconstruct. I don't know if you've thought about this. Definitely. I mean, I think that we're going to, you know, I'm, I've, I definitely come with an ethic of transition, which is like, we're going to need an assortment of all of it. And it's over time, we're trying to move towards feeding and growing the things that we want. But I think mm-hmm. in the meantime, we, you know, let's, let's recognize that, yes, uh, we have this system that can provide massive amounts of cheap, empty calories that come from the harm to uh, farm workers and land. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's take it. We got this. Yes. And let's think about where we want to go. And how do we build the infrastructure, the social infrastructure that we're going to need in order to do this differently? And I, you know, I don't think that it's all, it's, it really isn't always the case that this is more efficient when you really think about, 
it has been socially constructed to be more efficient to grow corn in the way that we do. It's it's not actually most efficient when you think about like sustainable earth systems that will have any kind of longevity. It's actually very inefficient. Uh, and that's why we have, you know, soil degradation around the world. But even if we're thinking about efficiency in the way that I think that it is often it is often used, we, you know, you can just look at something like the disaster of Hurricane Maria, by which I don't mean the hurricane. Yeah, the hurricane was a hurricane. Caribbean islands have been hit by hurricanes since there were islands in the Caribbean. It's the social construction of our built environment and our social infrastructure that creates disasters. And uh, one of the things that we saw in Puerto Rico was because of this like imperial colonial relationship with the United States. They couldn't even receive aid from like uh, <laughs> Dominican Republic, <laughs> you know, just like a little little boat ride across the <laughs> to the next island over. They couldn't receive aid unless it went to mainland United States and then came back to Puerto Rico. And that's because of this imperial relationship, which is imperialism is a system of concentration and centralization of, uh, of power. And so if, if you want to look at that on a mass scale, yeah, these centralized systems are very inefficient. They're, I, well, well, they're very efficient if you are a person who is valued within that imperial system. If you are a white, upper class or affluent person, yeah, that system was made for you. But it is very inefficient. It is purposefully not made to protect people who have been condemned to social death, people of color, queer and trans people, people who are considered disposable around the world. The system wasn't created. The system was actually created off of the exploitation of people of color and the, the social death of queer and trans people. So I think that that's important to, to remember, that efficiency, efficiency should not be our goal. Our goal really needs to be community wellness and regeneration of the land and the social infrastructure that have been destroyed through centuries of gendered racial capitalism and regenerating that power within communities and within you know communities rooted in land to care for themselves and for each other that is what's most efficient so whatever we can do to support that local process of people being able to be self-sufficient is going to be longer term the kinds of solutions that will allow the most people to survive. Mm. I think what necessarily comes with centralization is homogenization of yeah. all forms of diversity. And so if we're talking about honoring and regenerating biocultural diversity, as we recognized earlier on, that inherently is tied with decentralization and community-based resilience. So I love 
that this is coming full circle. And there is a powerful quote from the film which noted, the system as it exists cannot last, not just that it will collapse, but that collapse is all around us if we look at it. The question is, what kind of society can we build by catching and repurposing the collapse of these empires, end quote. And so as the frontline communities globally disproportionately face more disasters and climate crisis-driven disasters, and as more of the literal and metaphorical infrastructures of modern societies collapse and crumble, what have you witnessed of the resilience and creativity stemming from the queer and other historically harmed communities? And this actually, you know, this, this brings me back to what I was talking about at the beginning with Wungari Mathai. You know, I think that these are some kind of seeds planted in me by her that I've, I've finally been able to tend. I, I finally realized they're there and uh, they've, they've, they've grown in my mind <laughs> for the past 15 years. And the work that she was doing with the Greenbelt movement was exactly this, you know, climate change um, is nothing new in Kenya. The kinds of droughts that have been linked to deforestation are intricately issues of, of climate change. And her solution for that has been to empower local women to plant trees. Not just like a really early decision they made was not to give people seeds, but to teach them how to identify and grow the seeds from the trees that were already in their areas. You know, that level of rerouting ecological knowledge and decentralization. And it's through that, through that like reconnecting to uh, land and place and regenerating local ecosystems that rural Kenyan women were able to recreate dignified livelihoods and participate in the political process of pushing back against the neoliberalization of their government. Without having the basis for survival, there's no way to participate in that system. So, uh, you know, those are some of the seeds that were planted in me. And now when I look at moments of disaster and speak with queer and trans communities that are they're involved in these mutual aid and regenerative ways of caring for each other in the aftermath, I see similar things. And I, I want to be really clear that queer and trans people, when they're engaging in these projects, aren't just only supporting other queer and trans people. Like, I think that that is, uh, that's actually, a, a, I think, a major trap in our contemporary LGBTQ movement is to only be providing resources or focusing on policy that impact our immediate community. And because if we, you know, I often, people will say like, oh, well, how are, you know, queer and trans people impacted by climate change, by which they mean white gay men, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. I start to, you know, say all the things about the high rates of homelessness and things like that. And then they'll say, oh, well, isn't that just a problem of the vulnerability of people who are homeless? And it's like, yes. So same with like, you know, vulnerability of people who have mental illness and, and, and disability. One of the solutions that we need is universal health care. So how do we have a queer and trans movement that's as dedicated to universal health care? And so on a, on a micro level, on the level of mutual aid, on the level of relationships in the wake of disaster, that's um, one of the places that uh, I think is important. You know, a lot of people don't go out there into communities and they're saying like, oh, I'm, I'm here to provide support for queer and trans people. They're just, you know, mm -hmm. they're cooking. <laughs> they're, they're cooking for community. They're growing food for community. They're engaging in healing traditions. 
that that are things that they know that their that their communities um, need that they aren't able to access in other ways. So, like I think of um, the North Bay Organizing Project in Tres Vasquez, who was leading um, healing clinics in the wake of the fires. And these were clinics that had uh, limpias, that had acupuncture, that had uh, massage with childcare, food provided. And then they also had resources on how to um, access funds from the Andaki Fund for people who are undocumented who couldn't get access to resources from FEMA. So, you know, this is like, this is a really holistic way of caring for a marginalized community that, you know, from an outsider looking in, like, how is that a queer trans solution? It's like, yeah, it's, it's about multiplying the options that people have to get the kind of care that they need. That's, that's pretty queer to me. Mm. Yeah. And I think this is so related, but you've also explored queer as a verb. So for example, mm-hmm. highlighting the idea of queering resilience, and especially when we're at a crossroads confronting our converging crises that I believe is really calling us into question and disrupt norms to be more adaptable and fluid in our responses and to embrace change. What critical contributions do you think the disabled, queer, and trans communities can gift to the collective to help a lot of people who may feel stuck and help guide us towards becoming more imaginative in envisioning all of our possibilities going forward? Mm. The first thing that's coming to me isn't actually an answer to your question, but it is kind of like a like a important thing to hold in mind when mm. when going down that line of thought, which is I it's, I saw a number of folks just kind of on on social media and in community with a number of folks in disability justice work, and they were saying someone was saying. Pretty soon, you'll have all these organizations turning to us for the creative solutions for resilience, which they won't use to help us survive. Mm. You know, and I, I that kind of I guess brings me back to the the story of ecofeminists who would you know, use the memory of queer indigenous people to then promote their own political agendas that mostly benefited um, white people. I think it's it's a big part of the answer here is being in solidarity with the leadership of marginalized communities and their struggles for um, self-determination and liberatory futures. And that it's through being in solidarity that we can be transformed in the service of the work and learn how to help our own survival. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's about, it's about solidarity at the end of the day. And finally, before we go into our lightning round closing questions, what else feels pertinent for you to share here to help close our main discussion? And what are some of your calls to action or invitations for deeper learning for our listeners? Oh, there's so much. There's so much. And I'm always nervous that I've I've said something that wasn't exactly what I mean, especially, you know, it's just so difficult when it, when it comes to thinking about these tense incommensurabilities in our different needs for survival. And I just want to, I say on, on one level that I'm, I'm really here on this planet to be in a community 
and to continue to learn. So, you know, anyone listening, if you, if there's something that I've said that rubbed you the wrong way, reach out because I think if we're going to build a movement that's capable of collective liberation, we need to be in conversation with each other. And I'm just really, really trying to find a way to imagine a queer eco-justice movement that leaves no one behind and is committed to reparations and is committed to land remediation. And that's going to, uh, that's going to involve a lot more conversations. So I, w- I want to say that. And, and also, I want to um, let people know about the Fire and Flood film. There is currently a sneak peek draft of the project. It's an 104-minute film that you can book for a community screening, a public event, private event, have at your house. It's um, 100% donation-based. Like I have uh, suggested donations if you're if you're with an organization that has funds but the point is to get it out into community and to have these conversations and with the money that we raise through this sneak peek i'm working on turning this film into a 10 episode web series that will be open free available specifically formatted to help educators in high schools youth groups and undergraduate level bring these conversations into their classes where you know the queerest generation is currently looking at a future of climate instability and are ready for the kinds of messages that these um, queer and trans activists in the film are trying to transmit. So if you um, would like, that's the best way to help get this film out there to get the web series ready and in the hands of educators is to host a screening now and to have these conversations. And yeah, you can find out more at www.queerecoproject.org and feel free to reach out to me at any point. I'm, I'm here to be in community. What is an uplifting or impactful social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Okay. So if you're interested in these intersections, the things I've been talking about, I cannot recommend enough that you follow Queer Nature. So and Pinar are inspirations to me. The depth and passion in their writing brings these abstract concepts like biocultural diversity in the queer community to life. So follow queer nature. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Mm. Um, I'm not a very hopeful person. I'm actually, I'm definitely like a, a pessimist by inclination, but I say that hope is a political discipline. And I remind myself of that. And uh, as one Gary Mathai said, the best time to plant a tree was 50 years ago but the second best time is now. So when things feel hopeless, 
that is my reminder that I can't change what we didn't do 50 years ago, but the second best time is now. And what are some of your greatest inspirations right now? Yeah, I think I'm just, the earth has an incredibly resilient capacity to regenerate. And I am very inspired by the activism around the world that is partnering in this art of regeneration and and building deep relationships that reconnect mind, body, land, and spirit. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Vanessa's work, you can head to their website, www.queerecoproject.org, and you can also follow them on Instagram at queers, the number four, climate justice, and on Facebook at Queer Eco Justice Project. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been an honor and pleasure to have you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? The ancestral futures are created in the here and now. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also greatly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Desmond White's Fallen Stars. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>